Before we go to God's word, let's uh, go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is helpful, it's insightful, it's clarifying, it's formational. Sometimes it's also challenging. And so as we come to your word today, that it, it points us to a life of flourishing. Help us at least have these two things. Let us be hungry for it. Help us realize how famished our souls are apart from hearing from you. Cut through all of the competing opinions and perspectives and advice that we swim in on a weekly basis. And let us just hear your word. And grant us a humility. Help us to bow below your word where it confronts us and challenges us and stirs us. Help us to pause and consider what every single person in this room needs most. What we all need is to leave this time more impressed with Christ Jesus. So I ask that you'd make them loud in our songs, in our conversations, in our prayers, during communion. And God, I pray during this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Something I've heard from, from parents often, particularly those that are a little bit ahead of my wife and I in terms of parenting and particularly with like kids that are like emerging into adulthood and they're, they're leaving the house is kind of this common refrain of, I, I hope we laid the right foundation. Like, I, I, I hope we raised them right. And, and that made sense when my kids were younger. It makes a lot of sense now that they're older. Our oldest daughter, we just dropped her off at, at, at college again, uh, starting her sophomore year. And I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, you hope that you, you, you've raised them right. You've laid the right foundation. So we dropped her hundreds of miles away. There is really no oversight. She can choose to get up or not. She can go to class or not. She'll choose what friends she hangs out with. She'll choose the places she goes. She'll choose the things she, she does. She'll choose whether to text me back ever or not or turn the location services back on her phone so I can track her. That's not stalker. That's just a thoughtful daddy or not. She's just out. And so you have this sort of like you, you hope that you've laid the right foundation. By that, what I mean is I hope that Katie and I, her mom and I, We've laid a foundation in her life that will result in her flourishing over the next few years, into her 20s, and throughout all of life. Psalm 128, it's going to lay a foundation for human flourishing. We're going to look at three parts to this psalm, how life works best, why life goes sideways, and we'll end with some, some hope that one day life will go perfect. How life goes best, why life often goes sideways, and how life will one day go perfect. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Psalm 128, this is God's holy, helpful, flawless, really legacy-shaping word. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. 
Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Feel free to grab a seat. Now the first word of the first verse is, is a really important word for understanding what the psalmist is trying to get across in Psalm 128. This word blessed, it can be translated fortunate. Fortunate is the person. Or, or it can mean happy. That's, uh, if you find some translations, they'll translate it happy. I'm, I'm really compelled, though, to translate this word um, the, as flourishing. And where I get that from was a, a bunch of work done by a guy named Jonathan Pennington, who wrote a book called uh, uh, On the Sermon on the Mount, this wonderful collection of teachings that Jesus gave us, these three chapters. And, and one of the Gospels is these three chapters. I'm like, this is how life works. This is how to orient your life. And it begins with these eight blessed statements. And the way he translates, he says, really what that's saying is, is flourishing, that, like a wholeness, like a, like a thriving, like a not just barely scraping by sort of approach to life. And then what this psalm does is it goes on in, in verses two through four, and it, and it gives a really vivid picture of what this flourishing life looks like. It begins with vocational flourishing, they, like you'll, you'll eat the, 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 the result of the hard work that you do, that you'll actually enjoy your job and, and benefit from the hard labor that you put in. And then it goes into a picture of kind of domestic flourishing. Your wife will be like a luxurious vine. It doesn't mean just fruitful. The, the, the language in the Bible, wine was used in places of celebration and commemoration and, and community. That between husband and wife, there'll be this interconnected partnership that will, it'll just sing. Now you could take this, if it can happen in marriage, it can happen anywhere. So whatever stage of life you find yourself, it's saying that your relationships can be life-giving. And then it goes on and said, your children, they'll be like, like olive shoots all around the table. They'll grow up and be productive and valuable to your children's Children. James Boyce in his commentary on Psalms, he, he, he references like wine and oil and he says, you got to know that at this time, these weren't the staples of God's people. This wasn't just like the things they ate to merely get by nutritionally. These were, 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 were pictures of abundant life. These were the things you pulled out at the party. These were the things that those who had means were able to partake in. Psalm 128 is an invitation towards domestic and vocational bliss, meaningful work, good marriage, good families. It's actually enjoyable. And one of the things that kind of hits you with that, and in 20 years of being a pastor that hits me with this, is that, that it kind of seems unreal because it seems like actually those are the things that are actually really hard. What happens at work or at school, what happens in our closest relationships, they're just, some, just constant struggles and challenges. I try to address that a few different ways. Um, one is to realize that this psalm was written by a real person at a real time. And they're still saying this. To give you some perspective, when this was written, the infant mortality rate was about 50%. Every kid in the home, it meant there was one in the cemetery. They didn't have Netflix at this time. Imagine how hard that would be. They have running water. They didn't have, you know, plumbing. They didn't have refrigeration. 
They have any of that stuff. And they had all the same dynamics and struggles that you have between husbands and wives when you get married and you try to build your lives together. I mean, they had all the same struggles. And yet, this psalmist is able to say, oh, but it can be good. But it can be good. And there's flourishing. So why do we think that a vision like this, or so many of us, I think, get caught into this, this, this way of thinking that this seems unreal, this seems untouchable. A life where, where it's flourishing just seems impossible. I think there's a lot of reasons to give you a couple of them. I think some of it is that we, we believe good has to be perfect or it's bad. And because of that, we miss out on all the wonderful things around us. That, that because there's fights with your kids, you miss out on the good conversations. Because there's friction between you and your spouse or your friends, you miss out on the rich conversations. Maybe another one is this, so that we think that if it's supposed to be good and it's supposed to be bliss, and it's supposed to be flourishing, that it shouldn't be that hard. Two of my favorite marriage books, um, one of them is this, the title is this, So What Did You Expect? I just think it's a fantastic title. You get married, you know, you fall in love and you do a couple of premarital classes and you do the wedding. It's like, of course, you're like, marriage is going to be the greatest. And then three months in, you're calling the pastor up and you're like, what's going on? We just got, oh, I don't know what, what happened. And you just go like, so what do you expect? Connected to a second title, great marriage book, When Sinners Say I Do. When one messed up and flawed and broken and good and bent person marries another person. You're going to have friction. But sometimes we think that a flourishing life where everything's clicking, everything goes, well, it should be easy. Let me give you maybe a third reason we think it's so impossible, this picture of actually a flourishing life. Um, perhaps we're not doing what this text says to do. And I'm not throwing that out as an accusation. We're going we're gonna to nuance this. We're going to try to maneuver our way through this text and the reality of this world. So just hold on to that, and we'll bring that back in in a little bit. But for now, let me invite you to just take a minute and dream a little bit. Let this text paint a vision and a picture of what can happen. A life of flourishing. Not always easy, for sure. But one that's whole and good and right and enjoyable and honoring to the Lord. Now, for most of my life, um, as a lifelong Seattleite, um, I was a Seahawks fan. Seahawks were mostly terrible. And then on the good years, they were kind of mediocre. That was what I grew up with. I was conditioned to see the Seahawks that way. And then something happened. And I don't remember the year it happened, but it happened. We got the Legion of Boom. Does anyone remember that? Stunning. It was, you, do you, it was crazy to go into watching a game not assuming we would lose. Like the assumption was we're going to win. They are going to absolutely smash everyone and we are going to win. And then we ended up getting Marshawn Lynch. Beast quake, you know, just these incredible runs. So much so you have an earthquake in Seattle and you get so excited. And then we finally got a franchise quarterback who has abandoned us. Let's be honest. <laughs> he has abandoned us. There's a, a section of scripture called imprecatory prayers. They're curses. Don't pray those for him. Um, you can see where my heart's at. But when Russell Wilson came, the tone changed, the culture changed, the, the hope changed. And then the 2013 season came. And he began to say this line. He says, why not us? You know, shirts were printed, posters were done. Everyone said, why not us? Why, you know, and he believed it. 
And his teammates began to believe it. And then the city believed it. And then the region believed it. Why not us? Someone's going someone's gonna to win. Someone's gonna, it's going to go well for somebody. Someone's going home with the ring. Someone's going home with the trophy. And then 2014, Super Bowl, Denver Broncos. Oh, wasn't it glorious? It was just glorious. Just, if you remember the game, it starts, just absolutely smashed them, embarrassed them. For four, it was, I was like 47 to eight. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Why not you? I think one of the biggest struggles I have, and I'll put this again in the context of marriage as a pastor, is trying to convince couples that the struggles that they're in and the frustrations they're in or the tensions they have with kids or the struggles they're having at work, those don't have to be permanent. That they can get replaced. That we have a God of resurrection and renewal. That he can do something new and something beautiful. And the picture of this text can get mapped onto your life. I know... Oh, I know, oh, in this room, every single person has stories and interactions. And, oh, but just for a second, just for a second. As you look at these verses and you see how good it is, you kind of ask the question, well, who wouldn't want that? Well, you got to look at what it takes. And that's where I think many of us run up against a wall. Blessed is everyone, and then listen to what it says, who fears the Lord. It's kind of a weird phrase. You know, fear, like we're afraid of spiders, we're afraid of snakes, we're, we're, we're afraid of heights. We're afraid, like, and so it's, it's even hard for us to get our heads around what's it mean to architect our lives around this fear of the Lord. So I'll try to, try to help with, with maybe just a couple of questions. Let's just start with this. Like, what is fear of the Lord? Amanda Denbach in a blog post, Fear of the Lord for the Sake of Your Marriage, um, says this, I want to preface what I mean when I write Fear of the Lord. I am not talking about a fear that pushes us away from God, terrifies us, destroys us, or brings us to a wrong understanding of God's character. I am talking about a healthy fear that cultivates reverence, majesty, awe. And many of us might include those, but listen to some of the other words that she puts in here. Submission, trembling, and humility in us towards a holy God. God is close to us. God is approachable through Christ. He befriends us. He's kind. But one of the things that can often be missing in our day-to-day walk is his absolute transcendence. His magnanimous power. The greatness and the majesty and the almightiness of an awesome God. We're in a culture where the fries are awesome and the dinner was awesome and the game was awesome and the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl was awesome. None of those are awesome in a biblical sense. God is awesome. He strikes you to your knees. I think this is captured a bit in... um, And I've used this illustration. Every preacher I know has used this illustration of trying to get a sense of the greatness of God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, this this series of books um, written by C.S. Lewis, and and I won't give you the whole story, but there's this land in Narnia, and there's all these talking beasts, and and these kids venture into it, and there's, there's a lion named Aslan who represents Christ, and this little girl, Lucy, she's talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're like, we're gonna take you to meet Aslan. 
I mean, to tell her about Aslan. She says, oh, I should very much like to see him. But a lion, I, I, I should be pretty, I'm going to be pretty afraid. And then she asks this question to Mrs. Beaver. She says, is he a safe lion? And her response back is like, oh my goodness, of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. This text, Psalm 128, is an invitation to architect your life before and under the authority of a God who is not safe, but he is good. Reverence, majesty, awe, trembling, humility, submission. That's fear of the Lord. What does it look like? What's it look like if somebody fears the Lord? Well, we get the answer in verse 1. It just completes the verse. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. This isn't saying two different things. It's not saying you fear the Lord over here and you walk in his ways over here. It's saying you complete your fear of the Lord by walking in his ways. He has authority to tell you how to architect your life and you set about walking in the way he's commanded you to walk. We see this captured, kind of combined in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the symbol. And each of these are talking about the word of God, his ways. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord. It's interesting that gets included in there. It's mapping it in. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether, or righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. I was driving back from Pullman after dropping her off, and you, know, you get six or seven hours in the car, you get lots of fun conversations. And one of my, my son, Owen, he asked me questions. He says, hey, Dad, how do, you, like, how do you make decisions about how to protect your kids? It's a great question. It was fun to engage with as he's thinking about, you know, someday if I have kids and how am I supposed to like, you know, be a good dad and all these things. And, and instead of just giving him a straight answer, I said, well, really, you got, like I, how I approach it is I got to ask like, well, why am I trying to protect them? And how I do that is I ask this question, I go for you, Oe. I go, my desire is that I would raise you to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm trying to put everything in your life through that grid, which I screw up all the time. But that's the goal, is I want to put everything through the grid of how do I help you love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And it becomes like this North Star orientation to help direct me. Am I still on? Am I good? All right, sorry that it helps direct the decisions that we make. Now, we get it wrong. It doesn't help you with all the nuance and complexity, but it gives you a North Star. Fear of the Lord works that way. Fear of the Lord and walking in his ways, it works that way. That's why it's the found. Hey, Tyson, are we, uh, am I cutting in and out? Yeah? All right. It might be. Now I'm good. Maybe I, wasn't, maybe I wasn't fearing rightly. God was like, I'm muting you now. I probably shouldn't joke about that. Um, right, but fear of the Lord works like that. It, it becomes this orientation that you submit your life under. Fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. It gives us this right posture to begin to walk the path that he's prepared us to walk. James Boyce in his commentary on Psalms says this, God must be taken seriously. He must not be trifled with. 
He must be as he actually is, the center of everything we are, think, or aspire to do. He must be our starting point for every project, the strength we seek for every valuable endeavor, the one we earnestly desire to please and honor as our goal. If I was going to summarize this psalm and this foundation for flourishing, I might say something like this, fear the Lord, walk in his ways, the rest will follow. Now, think about this at the ground level of your life as you take your interaction with your spouse. Is the way I'm speaking and acting, is that a reflection of fearing the Lord and walking in his ways? As I go into the workplace, am I fearing the Lord and walking in his ways? As I gauge in friendships and relationships and the careers I choose and why I choose them and the hours I work and the sports I do and how I do them or the clubs I'm a part of or the the books I read or the media I consume or the amount that I consume. Can I fly this over the top of a life of flourishing? This is honoring to the Lord. This is submitted to his ways and his will. I love how Eugene Peterson says it in a long obedience in the same direction. To guard us against the blasphemous chumminess with the Almighty, the Bible talks of the fear of the Lord, not to scare us, but to bring us to awesome attention before the overwhelming grandeur of God. Not only do we let God be God as he really is, but we start doing the things for which he has made us. Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. The rest will follow. I'm going to try to apply that a bit more. Um get it pressed into our lives a bit. But before we go any further, let's deal with something all too familiar. Um, life can go well, but it can also go sideways. And I know in this room, there's many people that have done it right and yet still got the wrong results. Let's, let's, let's look. So li- here's how life works best, but let's, let's take a little time and talk about how life can go sideways. Why does it go sideways? Um, let me give you a broad reason and then kind of a personally applied Reason. The broad reason is this. We live in what's known as a Genesis 3 world. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. That's the, the creation account. This is how God designed the world. This is the, the world. He, he, he formed and fashioned. He said, let there be light. He created everything that we see, everything that we experience. And then he formed humanity. He formed men, a man and a woman. And he brought them together in a marriage. And do you know that for a, a short moment of human history, there was a marriage that had no fighting? Hallelujah. Genesis 1 and 2. But then we get to Genesis 3, and the original man, the original woman, they rebelled against God. They they took his commands, and they rejected them. They didn't submit. They didn't fear the Lord, and they did not follow his ways, and they broke, and they bent the world. And from there, everything got frazzled. It doesn't mean the world is, is, is terrible. It means that it's been marred. It's been distorted. It's been challenged. And, you know, this is why, you know, somebody can, you know, smoke three packs of Marlboro's a day, unfiltered, drink a, a jug of whiskey and live to be 97 when someone eats quinoa and tofu and, you know, runs 12 miles a day and passes away at 27. Sometimes it just isn't always one plus one equals two in this world. Sometimes things just get broken and messed up. I'm going to say something. I, I, I hope this isn't encouraging to you. I don't, again, I don't remember where I heard this. And I'm not even sure I can defend it biblically, but it seems right. Um, so I'll let you put that through your grid. God, as father, was the very best of fathers. And yet his kids still rebelled. Jesus was the very best of friends. And yet some of his friends still rebelled. 
I don't want you to take a text like this and wear it as a weight around your neck that says all of the outcomes around me are all my fault. Psalm 128 is what's known as wisdom literature. What it's wisdom literature, when you go to things that God is saying, this is, this is how the world typically works. What God is doing in these is he's giving us principles and patterns. He's not giving promises. He's saying this is typically how it works best. Here's where it gets tricky though. This psalm does make clear that our choices, behaviors, the things we do have an impact. What we do matters. It's just not the only thing that matters. And that's kind of good news and challenging news because what you do matters. So it brings dignity and significance and importance to how you structure your lives and how you live and how you parent and how you befriend and how you work. But because we're in a flawed, bent world, it's not the only thing that matters, which I would suggest to you is all the more reason to go to a wisdom that comes from outside this world to map your life to, to fear the Lord, walk in his ways, and the rest follows. So there's this broad reason. We live in this kind of Genesis 3 world. Here's the, the, the personally applied reason, though. Not only is the world bent, but we are too. And when God instructs us and God calls us and, and God trains us, we have a tendency to dismiss, dodge, modify, minimize what he's called us to do. So why do things go sideways? Sometimes, and I want you to hear that. It's important, okay? Please hear that. Sometimes it's because you've stopped fearing the Lord. Sometimes things do get broken around us, and we miss this picture of flourishing. Sometimes, I want, sometimes, because we've stopped fearing the Lord. Michael Horton, in his book, um, Recovering Our Sanity, which is a book on the fear of the Lord, very helpful book. On page 32, he asked the reader to pause and say, I want you to pause and just list what you believe to be are the top 10 sins in the world or in your life today. And then he goes on and he says something like, if you're, if you're anything like me, you've likely listed symptoms, not the root cause. And his whole book is built around trying to say the root cause is this, we've lost the fear of the Lord. His reverence, his majesty, there's not awe, there's not humility, there's not submission, there's not trembling. He goes on and says this, he says, active rebellion against God is not the root, but the fruit of failing to take God seriously. I'll give you a challenge. Can you think of anything in your life that's gone better because you treated God lighter? Anytime it actually worked out better, long-term, because you stopped fearing the Lord. And stop walking his ways. And I apply this to myself. Amanda Denbach, again, talking about the fear of the Lord, she says, when I read Proverbs, I immediately think about the theme, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is mentioned over 12 times in Proverbs. Why is this so important? Why does it matter for my marriage? Fear of the Lord ultimately leads to godliness. That's why it matters. Or if we're going to pull from Psalm 128, we'd say this fear of the Lord ultimately leads to flourishing. That's why it matters. Fear the Lord, walk in his ways, the rest will follow. So you stop fearing the Lord, but then there's the other side, right? I said it's not one thing. It's fear the Lord and walk in his ways. They're interrelated. So if you stop fearing the Lord, you stop walking in his ways. It's a, it's a package deal. Give you a couple reasons we might stop. And this is the one that maybe hits us the hardest. It makes it the, the most difficult for us to really live in light of the wisdom of verse one. Fearing the Lord and walking his ways, it requires this. It requires submission. 
Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. Not mine. Not yours. Not my opinions. Not my preferences. Not the things that feel right to my own sensibilities. Not my own understanding. Reverence, awe, majesty, humility, trembling, submission. So it looks like to walk in his ways. Remember, he's, he's not safe, he's good. His, his instructions are for flourishing. It's that things would thrive around us. So you need to keep that picture clear, but it's still his ways. I was having lunch with my um, Mona's daughter like three, four weeks ago, and we, we began discussing, she, uh, we both really like talking about the Bible and doctrine and just different things, and we're kind of going back on some different doctrines, some different parts of the Bible, some different ways of thinking about God and who we are, and then we got to one, and, and I said something, and then she said something back about this doctrine, and I responded to her, I said something like, I said, oh, Emmy, I didn't know that you liked that doctrine, and her response was fantastic. Dad, what does like have to do with it? I might struggle with it, but that doesn't change anything. It's not about what I like. It's about what God says is right. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your careers, in your life, in school, in sports, in clubs, and social media, and movies, whatever, if you only line up with God's word when you think it's right, that's called agreement, not submission. That's walking, your ways just, God's ways just happen to match with your ways. Building a life like this is saying, no, 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 under his authority, under his wisdom, under his grandeur, in, under his insight, I'm going to sit underneath what he said. And even though I don't want to do it, I'm going to do it. Maybe I'll give you an example. Um, it's probably 10 years ago. It's not that this has not happened since then, but this, I remember this moment. So clearly my wife and I, um, we had gotten in a fight. We'd said things to each other that we shouldn't have said. There was, there was this friction and this, this, this kind of anger. And, 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 and so we were in the bedroom and she leaves the bedroom. She goes to the other side of the house and I'm sitting in, in the bedroom. I'm sitting on the edge of the bed. And I know your marriages never do this. I'm just letting you in some marriage just this happens, okay? So there's this, this friction and this geographical separation, but there's an emotional strain that's happening. I'm sitting on the edge of this bed. My wife's in the other room. And I'm like, it's her fault. She, it's not, this, this one is not me. Probably was, but I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. This one's not me. And I'm, I'm like, God, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go make it right. She needs to make it right. I'm not going to bridge the gap. She needs to bridge the gap. I don't even know if I'll forgive her. So I'm sitting there doing this, right? God, I'm not going. And it's like, oh, really? Really, you're not going to go? And so I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I felt like Ephesians 5 was just hammered onto me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. So God, get up and go and love your wife. Fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. But it's going to require you to do things that are hard. This text is inviting you to something beautiful, but it's not easy. Fearing the Lord and walking in his ways is a daily dying to self. Those parts of yourself that are not aligned with God. Those parts of yourself that are still stiff-arming him. 
Those parts of yourself that think you know better how things are going to turn out. And so this, the wisdom of a text like this is such a gift to us to say, in that moment, I was being a stubborn. I was being, I was being all sorts of things. But if I keep living out of what I want, our marriage doesn't flourish. It just continues to flounder. Again, I know we're in a bent world. You can do it right and things still go sideways. But why not use the wisdom of God and the principles to try to help it go better? I love Eugene Peterson, how he dresses this kind of resistance to the ways and will of God. And it's such a kindness to us. He says this, he says, people accuse religion with interfering with what they consider their innocent pleasures and wishes. But religion is an inconvenience only to those who are traveling against the grain of creation. It cross purposes with the way that leads to redemption. God's ways and God's presence are where we experience happiness that lasts. And as this text says to our children's children, fear the Lord, walk in his ways. The rest will follow. All right, I'll go quickly through this next one because it requires submission. Some of us, though, it's because it's just slow. You know, you read this, you start to put it in your lives, and let's be honest, you know, this, the, this text is talking about the domestic life primarily. That can be a place of a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, and a lot of difficulty. Now, I want you to hear again, you maybe did it right and it still went sideways. You know, nuance this for yourself. Put it through whatever grid you need to. But for some of us, it's just we give up because it's slow. This walking this, that requires a self-denial, it doesn't always pay off right away. We don't see how it turns out. It's not working fast enough. I actually think the images of this text are really helpful for this, to try to create some perseverance in this. It talks about a, a, a well-cultivated vine. That takes time. It takes a really long time to have a, to have a vineyard. It you know, it's like, it sounds so romantic. Let's go do a vineyard. It's like, it's just back-breaking, hard, sweatier-brow work. It's just difficult. Or like olive shoots. The average olive tree, it takes something like three or four years to simply bear any fruit. And then it's like eight years or so before it bears enough to actually be worth harvesting. And you take like 40 or 50 years before it actually grows into full maturity. Does that sound like parenting? Sounds like parenting. But here's the payoff. That olive tree then begins to produce for centuries. Actually, there's a tree in the French Riviera. There's an olive tree that's supposedly 2,200 years old. Sometimes we just give up too fast. You cannot, oh, my dear friends, you cannot see around the corner of the adversity that you're in front of. You cannot see the twist. You, you, do, you and I, we do not have the wisdom, the perspective, the vantage point to architect all of these things. That's why I think God's word is so helpful because he says, here's how to do it. You don't have to see all the pieces. Just fear the Lord. Walk in his ways. The rest will follow. I love passages like this. I really do. I love that God is so helpful to us. I love that he, the one that designed us, gave us the manual on how we operate best. I love where God's word is challenging, that it's inspiring. But God's word always gives us more than just wisdom on how to live. It gives us hope no matter how we've lived. And that's where verses five and six go. The word blessed is used four different times in Psalm 128. But the first two uses are different than the next two uses in four and verse five. The Hebrew word is one word up in verse one, and, and it, it's this word for flourishing. It's the result of architecting your life around the principle in verse one. But what's wonderful is the word in verse five has nothing to do with you or with me or how we live, but only with God. 
It's this word to, to be blessed, to have unearned favor poured out upon you, to have good things happen for you even when you didn't do the right things. It's why fear of the Lord might be the foundation of flourishing, but the blessing of the Lord is the fountainhead of all blessings. Everything ultimately comes from his hand. What we need most is not hard work and wise choices. Although those matter. I want to be careful. I don't want to saw off. I don't want to, you know, sandpaper off the point of the... We need hard work, but what we need most is not hard work and wise choices. What we need most is the blessing of the Lord that we do not deserve and we cannot earn. That's why the psalmist knows this. That's why he ends like this. The Lord bless you from Zion. Would the Lord do it? Would the Lord intervene? Would the Lord repair? Would the Lord repair that relationship? Would the Lord repair your heart? Would the Lord restore your marriage? Would the Lord attend to your relationship with your kids? Would the Lord bring a prosperity? Would the Lord bring healing? Would the Lord bring life? Would the Lord bless you from Zion? And then it ends with this peace be upon Israel, this word peace, this this beautiful word that doesn't mean the cessation of conflict primarily. It means the presence of wholeness. It says, oh, would the life you've always been looking for, would God finally bring it about? And we know the answer. The psalmist, when when prayed this, when it was asking the Lord, oh, would you bless him? We have the answer. We have the ultimate answer of the blessing of the Lord and the giving of his son who didn't just come from Zion but came from heaven to earth to come and bless us, to give us the life that that we cannot wisdom our way into, to come and live the life of fear and devotion to the ways of God that we have failed to walk. And then the story of the gospel, God ransoms people and ushers in a new creation that he goes to a cross and he suffers in the place of all those that trust him and he goes to a tomb and he three days later rises from the dead to say, oh, death can't hold me. It won't hold you if I hold you. And he sends up to heaven, he says, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to bring a new creation, a new world that's going to undo this Genesis 3 amalgam of good and hard where work will be enjoyable and relationships will thrive and they'll never be frustrating. What we do matters for sure. What Jesus did matters more. So we seek to live with wisdom in this world. We fear the Lord. We walk in his ways. But more than anything, we seek our risen Lord who came to say, the life you really want is found in me. And that one you're never going to lose. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can read your word and we can understand it by your grace. um, But we need your intervention to apply it. God, I, I, I hope it was clear. I tried to put the not caveats, but the bumpers around this because I know in this room, these things get to very personal places for them. And so I ask for the appropriate nuance, the, the gritting, Holy Spirit, would you just let come through what needs to be heard? But that's across the board. Some of us... We need to hear things didn't turn out right because the world has gone sideways. Some of us need to hear things didn't go right because we went sideways. What we all need to hear is the world's only going to go right because Christ Jesus came 
and died and rose and is coming back. God, we thank you for the the picture of this text that, that points us to a life not merely of getting by, but one that's architected well, and not just for our own good, but for the good of those right around us and the good of those that come after us. Grant us the grace to apply this text well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to respond every week, um, or we're going to respond by receiving communion as we do every single week. As a church, we really do see this as, as really kind of the, the high point of our corporate gathering because this is when we get to participate and we get to remind and retell and kind of re-up on the story of the gospel in this room. There's four stations set up in the front. There's wine on this side. There's juice on this side. And then there's kind of individual communion service in the back corner if you prefer that. And as you go, the, the bread representing Christ's body, the, the, the juice of the wine representing Christ's blood. Um, this text is a like, hey, go architect your life sort of text. But communion is a, hey, come empty-handed to the one that can save you and remake your life. And so my encouragement to you is to to, to come boldly, freely, joyfully, with hope, because Christ Jesus has come to give his life. He died for all the ways we haven't feared the Lord. He's died in the place of all those that trust him for all the ways we've gone our own way and dismissed the, the Lord's ways. You have to come with promises and pledges. This is just a time to receive. And so as you come empty handed, and you will, you'll come empty handed with nothing to offer. Just come to this table. In this room, the only barrier to receiving communion is turning towards Christ. It's turning from your self-reliance and in, in, in your own ways and your own wisdom and your own agendas and your own, your own way of architecting it, like the things you think are right but aren't. And turning back to God and saying, please forgive. Let Christ cover over that. You turn from running and you turn towards him. That's the only barrier. So I'd encourage you, I invite you to confess your need for him. Confess all the ways you've run and then come to this table knowing you are loved and forgiven and restored and new in Christ. And let it give you some hope that the life you really want is secured through the work of Jesus Christ alone. The band will play a couple of songs. You don't have to rush to the table. Go as you feel led.